Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, first of all, that song you guys sang that Sophie picked out for you, The Lion of Judah, thank you for that song. That was one of my mom's all-time favorite songs uh, that she would listen to just over and over and over and over. So that song has some special meaning for me. So thank you for that song. Um, for this morning, my message is uh, titled Engaging the Silence. Um, but before I get into it, about, oh, I don't know, two weeks ago, I was kind of rolling through what am I going to talk about today. Um, and I had some ideas and stuff, so I started writing stuff down. And if you know me, I'm very much a procrastinator, so this was highly unusual behavior for me to be doing this two weeks beforehand. Uh, and I actually wrote down everything that I had wrote down so far. I, I filled out that day, and I, I had this great idea. And then just so I didn't let my wife down entirely, so that Liz wasn't completely disappointed. I did nothing else with it until this morning. So I woke up this morning and I made my PowerPoint presentation at about six o'clock at work. So I did procrastinate a little bit. So hopefully it's okay. Um, David, if you would go to the first slide. So I'm going to start this out with a poem. And I'll read it here. First, there is prayer. And where there is prayer, there may be miracles. But where miracles may not be, there are questions. And where there are questions, there may be silence. But silence may be more than absence. So be thinking about that this is not a... A lot of times when we think about prayer and we think about messages on prayer, we think about like, why? Why didn't God answer my prayer? Why didn't God do this? Why didn't, what, what about that? That's not really... The intention, I suppose, of the message. There's some stuff that will correlate to that, but that's not the intention. The intention of this is to recognize how we process the silence that may come with prayer. Um, maybe I'm, and I, I chose this or was thinking about this because this is, this is an area where I've probably struggled more than about any other. Uh, is when, when we have prayed, when we have fasted, when we've, we've done everything right. We've prayed about it. And this may be, it may be a request. Hey, maybe, you know, a relationship that we're hoping gets better. Um, A a certain uh, instance that we would like to see happen or healing for someone or whatever the case may be, a specific request. And not only, not only am I talking about when God says no, because I can take no, right? I can, I can accept a no. But what if there's nothing. There's just silence. How do we process that? How do we work through that? And how do we engage that? So with that being said, I'm going to jump around to a couple different scriptures, but I'm going to start um, with Matthew chapter 21 verses 21 and 22. I'm just going to read these quick. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, truly, if I tell, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what has been done to this fig tree, which he had made wither and die, uh, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Right? So that's a pretty understandable verse. And we all like to claim that and say, yeah, yeah, if we believe and we pray for things, this can happen, right? If I pray for this mountain to move, it can happen. 
But I think we're, we're um, naive to expect that when nothing does happen, that we don't question. That when I have fully prepared and, and I have prayed in faith and I have prepared my fields for rain and I have prayed for rain and there's no rain, I think we're naive to expect that we don't question. What did I do wrong? Did I not have enough faith? Is there something in my life that I'm doing that I shouldn't be? Maybe it's just not God's will, right? Well, why not? Maybe there's, um, maybe I'm just not a good enough Christian, right? And with all of those things, it, it brings to, it brings you to question in your heart, if you're honest with yourself, at least for me, it brings me to question, well, what value does this have? If God, and I say if loosely here because we know he is, but if God is all-loving, all-present, and all-powerful, then he knows your needs, he cares about them, and he will deal with them. Right? Everybody agree with that? If he doesn't, it breaks that down. In our minds, if God doesn't, he either must not know about my needs, he must not love me enough to care about them, or he can't do anything about it. Those are your three, those are your three logical solutions to why, did, why, why didn't God answer at all? Why did I get silence? Those are your three choices. If you want to think about this critically and you want to think about it logically, which I like to think I'm a critical thinker and I think things through logically and not emotionally like some other people in my life. But I like to think that about myself. So if I try to do that with this scenario, I end up with that question. God either doesn't love me, he can't do anything to fix my problem, or he just doesn't care. Right? C.S. Lewis, how many of you are familiar with his, his children's books, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia? Right? So most of us have read some parts, maybe all, maybe all of them twice the way I did. I love those books. Um, but he wrote a prequel to that series. Uh, and in that prequel, he writes about this young boy. And I don't know his exact age, but I'm going to say maybe he's 10. And this boy's name is Diggory. And Diggory lives with his mom. And Diggory and his mother are very close. He loves his mom. And she becomes sick to the point where she is going to die. And this is all Diggory has, is his mother. He has nobody else. And Diggory goes to Narnia, and he meets Aslan, Aslan the lion, right? And in Narnia, there's a, there's a tree with some fruit on it. And this fruit will heal anything that could possibly be wrong with you. So Diggory thinks, logically... And he says, hey, I could use one of those. I want one of those. I could take one back and my mom will be healed, right? So Aslan is in charge of this fruit. And we think, okay, this is a young boy. He's a 10-year-old. What more, how, how could anybody be more passionate 
than a 10-year-old that is close to his mother, that she is sick to the point of dying? How could anybody have more heartfelt feeling and emotion to ask for something than what Diggory does here? And he asks Aslan, can I have one of these fruits to take back, to heal my mom? She is going to die. And he gets nothing. It is silent. Aslan doesn't respond. There's nothing that is said. We're going to go to Mark 14 next. Verses 32 to 36. And here we have Christ going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Obviously in mental anguish. And he goes there and he prays, entirely distressed. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So I'm going to read these. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And in fact, in Luke, Luke points out that during this time period, Jesus begins to sweat. And it's not normal sweat. Luke says the sweat fell like drops of blood which in fact is a legitimate medical condition. However, it is brought upon only in severe and rare cases of mental stress or from suffering. But his sweat was like drops of blood. Going on, verse 35, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I think Christ knew the answer. He knew the cup wasn't going anywhere. He knew this was going to happen. He knew the outcome of the prayer, but he still prayed. He still requested it. For what purpose? Why? What's the point of it? Mark 15, verses 33 and 34. We jump ahead a little bit, and now we have Christ led away, and he's now dying on the cross. And as he's hanging on the cross, Mark writes, and he says, at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If I'm honest with myself, No, I've never hung on a cross, and I've never suffered in that manner, and I've never sweated blood. Hopefully I never have to. But if I'm honest with myself, 
When I get silence, that's how I feel. Why have I been forsaken? Why am I all alone? Do you even care? Are you there? Do you love me? What's wrong with me? Why don't I have faith? Those questions come up when that happens. And if Christ says that, if Christ of all, everybody that has ever lived, if he says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing the outcome, knowing what's going to happen, I think it's fully reasonable that we have that same feeling at times. Christ is crucified, like we all know. He's placed in the tomb. So for the next three days, where are the disciples at in all of this? The scriptures, gospels, don't really record exactly what they were doing, but I think we can make a fairly logical explanation or a logical, logical guess. They're either mourning, they're praying, they're hiding, or some combination of all of those. Right? Jesus was just crucified. Who's going to be next? Is it going to be Chris? Is it going to be Marcus? Is it going to be Irvin? Are you coming after Dwendal? Are they coming after me? Are they coming after my family? Who's going to be next? They probably spent some time in prayer. Probably some misery, some agony for them. But at the end of those three days, who knows what they were praying for exactly, but I will say this, I don't think they were praying for him to rise from the grave. Christ told them multiple times, Jesus told his disciples multiple times that they, he was going to rise on the third day. And yet when, the, the, when Mary and Martha go to the tomb and they come and they tell the disciples, they don't believe him. You would think of all the people for this to happen to and for them to come tell you, you'd be like, oh yeah, he said he was going to, yeah, that, that makes sense. But they didn't believe him. They said, no, there's no way. So I don't think they were praying for that. If you would have been praying for it, you would have seen your prayer be answered. But after three days, Jesus rises from the grave, and it's a better answer than whatever they were praying for. Maybe sometimes that's part of the solution. Maybe sometimes that's what's happening. Maybe our prayers aren't answered and we have silence because there's a better outcome. We may be praying for gravel stones, and God is about to give you a diamond. You don't know. In order to, at least for me, in order to change my views on how I see a successful prayer, I had to change the way I looked at prayer entirely. And instead of viewing prayer as something transactional, where if I did enough of the right things and I prayed hard enough and I had enough faith and I got enough prayer tokens and I put them in my prayer machine that it would work. Instead of viewing it that way and it being transactional, instead of me going to, to German Village and buying something with my money where I'm getting something because I gave something, if instead of that I started viewing prayer as being relational, instead of transactional, it changes the whole view of how you see a prayer become answered or not. 
all of a sudden the answer isn't really relevant. It doesn't matter. I might pray for something. God already knows about it. Christ prayed for something. He already knew the answer to it. It was a relational prayer, not a transactional prayer. Going back to to C.S. Lewis and the the story. So, Aslan, I already told you, he, he, he gave him no answer at all. Flat out ignored him. And Diggory, bless his heart, decides I'm going to ask again. Do we do that? I do. I ask for something, I ask for it again. I might ask for it a hundred times. But he dares ask this gigantic lion a second time for a fruit. And before I tell you what happens, you would think the second time he's going to give him the fruit. There's no way he ignores this little kid twice. I mean, you can't. How, how could I not have compassion for this kid and just give him a hundred fruits right now and say, here you go, go back, heal your mom. And this, this is directly out of C.S. Lewis's book, but this is how he wrote it. He said, Diggory, as he thought of his mother and of the great hopes he had and how they were all dying away, and a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out, but please, please won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure my mother? And you think reading that, man, like, he just, if, if this line, if Aslan has any compassion, if he has any love, if he has any power, if he's able to grant this request, he's going to do it. He is going to do it. He doesn't say no. He doesn't say yes. There is silence. And then he writes, C.S. Lewis does, and he says, Up to then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet with his huge claws on them, and now in despair, he looked at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonders of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. Suddenly everything changed. His prayer remained unanswered. He didn't give him a fruit. But what changed? Now he knew this lion cared and cared deeply. And I think that when we lift our eyes and we dare in despair to look at the lion of Judah, you'll see his face bent down next year's. sometimes with tears in his eyes. Prayer becomes relational, not transactional. 
the relationship matters more than the outcome. David, if you would go to the next slide. So there's an ending to this poem. I only gave you half of it. So I'm going to read it again. First, there is prayer. Where there is prayer, there may be miracles. But where miracles may not be, there are questions. And where there are questions, there may be silence. But silence may be more than absence. Silence may be presence muted. Silence may not be nothing but something. And where there is something, it is to be explored, defy, accuse, engage. And this is prayer. And where there is prayer, there may yet be miracles. Hopefully, some of you, hopefully not, but maybe there's some of you that felt the same way I did. When there's unanswered prayers, there's questions, there's doubts, there's frustration, there's anger. If I'm honest with myself, all of those things all at once. Bitterness. At the very least, there's questions. Be willing to engage that. Be willing to wrestle with that. But understand that God's love isn't tied to transactions. It's tied to a relationship. Christ didn't tell his disciples that if they prayed, they could move mountains because that's what he wanted. He doesn't really need you to move the mountain. He wants you to have a relationship. That's the purpose. And once I, under, once I can kind of begin to grasp that, it changes how prayer works for me. That's all I have, Marcus.